Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We have, for the last bunch of months, been doing a series in the Gospel of John. Uh, John's Gospel is a book that was written about Jesus by one of his close followers, a a chap called John. Uh, And and what John does is he writes for a very specific purpose that he explains at the end of his book. He said, it's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's wanting to show us some things that Jesus did and some things that Jesus said that help us understand who Jesus is and how we can respond to him. We're going to look at another story from this gospel this evening. And before we get into it, I I wanted to show you an image on the screen, uh, if you could bring it up. And how many of you remember this? All right, we are going to pretend that you can see an image of the comedian Joe Lysett. Um, Can you picture Joe Lysett? Can you picture him with a bunch of money and a big shredder? Uh, Do you remember what I'm talking about? This was uh, about a year and a half, a year and a bit ago, uh, when the World Cup was coming around in Qatar, and Joe Lysett wanted to protest against the World Cup being there because of various human rights issues and different things that he wanted to highlight. And so he said, right, here's I'm going to protest it. I'm going to get, there we go, uh, I'm going to get £10,000 I'm going to put it all in a big shredder. I'm just going to shred this money as my way of protesting and raising awareness. Do you remember that? Any of you uh, catch that story? I I wonder how you feel about it. I wonder how that kind of action sits with you. At the time, there was quite a lot of kickback. There were people who weren't happy. They They were saying, this is a waste of money. Think about all the good you could have done. Think about the charities you could have supported, the people you could have helped. And you've chosen to just waste this money, absolutely squander it. Now, it turns out he didn't actually shred the money. It was all a big publicity stunt. But that was the appearance. And people, rightly, I think, uh, argued back, you can't use the money in such a wasteful way. In the story we see tonight, it, it will at first glance appear a bit like that. There's a very similar argument that happens around how someone uses a very valuable possession. So, if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. And we're going to look at the first eight verses of the chapter. Uh, It should come up uh, on the screen as well, if you want to follow it there. So, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's what happened in the previous chapter. If you've been reading along John's Gospel, uh, alongside the preaching series, you might have read about that. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, 
objected. <coughs> Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So this is a story that happened on the last week of Jesus' life. John's Gospel spends a big chunk of time on the final few days, and particularly the final evening. But now we're coming into this last week of Jesus' life. He's in Bethany, that's a town not far away from Jerusalem. It was often a base that he would stay in when he was going to be in Jerusalem. And this story actually gets told in several different Gospel accounts. Matthew tells the story, Mark tells the story, Luke tells a story that's quite similar. Some people think it's kind of a version of the same story. Some would say it's a different one. And John here tells the story. I'll flesh out a few of the details from the other accounts. So Matthew tells us that this house was owned by a man named Simon, uh, Simon the leper, he he was called. Uh, Now, the people mentioned in this account are Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Scholars reckon that they were Simon's three kids, so Uh, Lazarus the son, Martha and Mary the two daughters. We're also told in Matthew that uh, this perfume, this nard that Mary had poured out on Jesus was contained in an alabaster jar. That's a particular kind of jar that didn't just have a lid that you could take off but you had to smash it open to get what's inside out. So that's the kind of jar she was keeping it in. Mark tells us that this meal, that where it happened, took place two days before Jesus died. Now John's mentioned six days, and that's when Jesus came to the house. So he came to the house six days before he died, staying there all week. Two days before he died, they're having this particular meal. And both Matthew and Mark have this line at the end, where where after there's been people kicking off, we, we hear Judas, but actually some of the other accounts say it's all the disciples are getting involved. Then Jesus honors her with this line, truly I tell you, Wherever this good news is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Which is an incredible line, isn't it? Yeah, the gospel will go to all the world, and there'll be a P.S. Mary poured some perfume on my feet. That is the P.S. to the gospel, according to Jesus, which is absolutely bonkers. Uh, And whilst superficially it would seem that this story has quite a lot in common with the, the Joe Lysett, shredding the money thing. I want to get under the bonnet of the story a bit. I want to see what's going on, because I think there's something very different happening here. And our focus is going to be on this character, Mary. And we're looking at it from four angles. So Mary's heart, then Mary's head, then the response of people to Mary by shaming her, and then Jesus' response to Mary in honouring her. That's what we're going to do. And then we'll think about what this might mean for us. So let's start with Mary's heart. What's going on on the inside? Well, this nard, this perfume is described as expensive. Did you hear it mentioned how much it was worth? About a year's wages. In Mark's version, he tells us that the value is 300 denarii. And a denarii was a typical day's wage for kind of a manual labour. You go out and work in the fields for a day, you get a denarii. Um, So I don't know how much money we're talking. Think about a year's worth of wages for a fairly like ordinary person that's how much this costs so we're talking what 
20 grand, maybe a little bit more than that. So that's more than Joe Lyser. He was going to shred £10,000. There was uproar at that. Here we're talking like 20 grand plus. Uh, and as I say, the alabaster jar, it was in to open it, you had to smash it. So what you couldn't do is say, I've got my 20 grand's worth of perfume. I'll use a bit of it on Jesus and I'll save the rest. Like, once you've smashed it open, it's smashed up. So you've got to use it up in one go. I was trying to think what might be like a modern day equivalent of this. And I thought, champagne, right? I've got a bottle. This is Prosecco, but we, we're going um, to go with this as being like expensive champagne. Imagine this is a bottle of champagne worth £20,000. And I decide, you're my honoured guest. I'd like to give you a glass of my champagne. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open this up. I'm going to pour you a little glass in honour of you. <laughs> there we go. Whoa! <laughs> I came prepared, don't worry. <laughs> so that can go there. There we go. That'll be all right. We'll sort that later. So no, nothing bad's going to happen, is it? So, but, but what I'll do is I'll give you a little glass because I only want to use a bit of my expensive champagne on you and then I'll just put the rest back in my cupboard and save it for maybe next year when I have a different honoured guest. Or, or you, you can't do it, can you? Once you've opened it, it's open. You've, uh, you've used it. It's all or nothing in the moment. And that was kind of what it was like for Mary breaking this jar of perfume open. She's showing extravagance, isn't she? She's giving something in its entirety that's very valuable. And I started wondering about this idea of extravagance and what ways people show extravagance today. And I found a website, people.com, that had a list of extravagant things that people have done for the sake of a relationship. Uh, and some of them are quite uh, moving and meaningful. Like someone said, well, I was in a long-distance relationship we're both military, uh, she's active, I'm guard, so I left my high-paying job, my friends and my family, and I moved all the way across the country for her. It's like, yeah, that's extravagance, that's, uh, th that's going all out, isn't it? Someone else said, like, for the sake of a relationship, they stopped eating meat. I mean, imagine doing that, changing your diet, giving up things that you like eating for the sake of someone else. The third one on the list maybe wasn't quite as extravagant as some of the others. Someone said that um, the most extravagant thing they've ever done for a relationship is pay the extra £2.50 for stuffed crust at Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> so if you end up with someone who that's the most extravagant they'll be for you, I'd say that's at least a yellow flag. Uh, you're looking for a bit more than that. But number four actually like, made me wince because... Um, yeah, somebody said that the most extravagant thing they've ever done for a relationship is they took the braces off their teeth with nail clippers because they thought the person didn't like them wearing braces. I mean, that's... Yeah, I can't even imagine it. But the way Mary showed extravagance for Jesus is she got her alabaster jar of perfume, she smashed it open, and she poured out this perfume upon him. What word would you use? to describe a gift like that? What, what, what kind of thing comes to mind? Maybe you'd use extravagance like we've talked about. Maybe devotion. Maybe that's a good word for what's going on. Or, or worship, perhaps. Or maybe the word love. She's displaying her love for the Lord. She's giving up something that matters for him. 
And actually, one of the, the people who writes about this is a guy called Richard Green. And he said many people believe that this perfume had been given to her by her parents for her wedding night. So it was meant to like anoint her wedding bed for her husband. What a precious gift she was giving to the Lord. There's something in the symbolism, isn't there, that, that she's giving up something valuable, but in her mind, it's not as valuable as the one she's giving it up for. Made me think of, in 1936, you, you may know the story, King Edward VIII of the United Kingdom, he, he fell in love with a woman who was American and had been divorced. And in the eyes of like the 1930s British establishment, both of those were like huge problems. And so he basically wouldn't be allowed to marry her. Uh, and so he just says, well, okay, but, but I love her so much, I'll give up this whole king thing. I'll, I'll step away from this kingdom, from this rule, from this position. And he abdicated the throne as his extravagant gift of love. It makes me think about that line in the hymn that we sometimes sing, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. I want us to think about extravagance and our walk with God. What does it look like for you to be extravagant in your worship of Jesus? Now, there isn't an instruction manual. It's not like extravagances do this then this, then this. It overflows from the heart. No one told her to do this, but something in her wanted to. What's your heart telling you to do that's extravagant for Jesus? Maybe it's to take up fasting, to start giving up food, to draw closer to him. Maybe it's pushing at the door of going to an unreached nation for him and giving your life into that. Maybe it might be extravagant in your financial giving for him. Maybe it might be putting an end to a relationship that you know doesn't please or doesn't honour him. There's all sorts of things it could be. And my concern tonight isn't the specifics of what you might do to express your love. It's to ask the much bigger question. Do you love him? Are you drawn to him like Mary was? Do you desire him above all things? Are you gladly pouring yourself out for him? Priscilla Shearer says, God's real desire, in addition to displaying his glory, is to claim your heart and the hearts of those you love. Well, he had Mary's heart. We've seen that in the story. Does he have yours? That's the question this evening. Now, in one way, I could just leave the preacher. That's a powerful question to land on, isn't it? Does he have your heart? Mary did something extravagant came from a heart of devotion, love, and worship. I think on the surface level, I think that is what's going on here. But if we stop here, I do think we're selling Mary a little bit short as well. Because she didn't just choose anything. She chose something very specific to do. And the actions that she took here, they actually show us that she'd understood something really profound that many others, even the closest disciples, hadn't quite grasped. We see a different story about Mary where she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's listening. She's hearing all the things that he's been teaching. And what she does here shows that what she's heard him say has gone in. She understands. She gets it. Because what she does is something called anointing. Now, you might have heard that word before. Maybe it's a word that, that to some it's kind of familiar. Not quite sure what it is. It was like that for me for quite a long time. Now, what anointing is, it's literally taking some oil. I came equipped with another 
prop as well, some oil. Uh, and when you anoint someone, you get a bit of the oil. So let's get a bit of the oil. Again, nothing bad's going to happen with all these open things around here. But you take the oil and you kind of smear it on the head. Maybe on the beard a bit if it's a man. But you anoint with oil like that. That's how anointing works. This is something that happened quite a lot in the Old Testament. And there were various reasons why it would happen. You could anoint someone for a particular ministry. So if somebody was going to start being a king or a priest or a prophet, often uh, as a launch into that, as a way of saying the oil is like a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and, and we believe we want the Holy Spirit to help us do that job, so we'll anoint with the oil, uh, and we'll pray for them, and we'll commission them into the job. So for example, when David was first becoming king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says, um, so he sent for him and had him brought in, He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So he was anointed with oil and the Holy Spirit came upon him to help him in his role as king. Also, uh, it it was sometimes that people who had certain illnesses who wanted to be prayed for healing would get anointed as well. So it's a symbol of healing or of empowering for a job. But then what happened is over time, it it started to become associated with a particular promise. A promise that God would send a certain individual who would make things right in the world. So in Psalm 2, for example... It talks about how the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. So this anointed is the figure who, uh, on God's behalf, here on the earth, will make things right. And Isaiah talks about the same thing. This is a prophecy in Isaiah. It's in the voice of this one who was promised. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. So that promise throughout the Old Testament is that God would send one who's called the Anointed One. Now, maybe you've heard this before, but this word Anointed One, uh, in the original scriptures it was in Hebrew, And the Hebrew word is one, I bet you're familiar with it. In fact, I've already used it once in this preach. It's the word Messiah. So when we talk about the Messiah, we're literally talking about the anointed one. So John says, I've written this book so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's so that you might believe he's that one who'd been promised. And then in the New Testament, that wasn't written in Hebrew. That was written in Greek. The Greek word that Messiah gets translated into is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. Very literally, you might say when we say Jesus Christ, we mean Jesus, the one who's been smeared with oil. That's literally what Christ means. And it also became a symbol of the Holy Spirit being poured out. So in Jesus, when he starts his ministry, the Holy Spirit's just come upon him, and then he quotes that verse from Isaiah. And then all his ministry is in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It's symbolised with prayer for healing as well. When Jesus and his followers in Mark 6, it says they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they cured them. So as the apostles were going around healing people, they would anoint them with oil and they'd see diseases go away. So that was a little bit of a detour, wasn't it? We were in this story about Mary and uh, cracking open her alabaster jar, but she anointed him, and all of that is what's rumbling away in the background. All of that's the idea behind what she did. So think about what might be going on in Mary's head when she decides that the way she wanted to express her love and devotion was to anoint him. What's she saying there? What's she understood? It's like she gets it. It's like she's saying, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. There's a famous moment in some of the other Gospels where Peter, he gets it. And he says, yes, I know who people say you are. They say all sorts of things. But who I say you are is you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Peter gets it and verbally says it. But it's just words. Well, here in John's Gospel, we have a very different account of someone getting it. Mary's got the same revelation that Peter's got, but she transcends just saying with words, you are the anointed one. She goes into, you could say, prophetic enactment. It's a symbol that shows what she's grasped deep down. Because think about it, if Jesus is the anointed one, well, how can he truly be the anointed one until somebody has anointed him? And if no one else is going to do it, Mary says, I've got my 20 grand's worth of this kind of perfumed oil. I'll do it then. I will be the one to anoint the anointed one. The other symbol here that Jesus highlights is this was done to prepare him for his burial. Another of the common uses of this type of ointment that she used was to prepare a body for burial. And it's like Jesus here has grasped that Mary's actions are readying him for that. It's like she's seen, she's understood, she knows that his death is coming. I mean, he's been going around saying it enough, hasn't he? Like, uh, it's written, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, and on the third day rise again. He said that over and over again. But with the other disciples, with the likes of Peter, they might have grasped, you are the Christ. But as soon as he starts trying to explain what it means, yeah, and I've got to go and suffer and die. He's like, no, you haven't. No, that's not how this is going to work. You're going to go and charge in and take over and be the boss around here. But Mary gets it in a way that seems even deeper. She understands, yes, you're the anointed one. And yes, you must be prepared to be buried. Yes, what it means to be the anointed one is that you will die. Kay Bonikowski says, not only does she believe that Jesus is the Christ, but she accepts his death is an integral part of his messianic destiny. Jesus can only gain his throne by his impending death. She's totally understood. The other verse that I saw that I just thought was quite cool, you know the famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23? Well, later on in that psalm, there's this line, you prepare a table before me, In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That's the psalmist looking to God as the one who prepares a table and anoints him. 
I think it's pretty cool that when Jesus, his enemies are closing in on him, he finds this little home in Bethany that can do all of this for him. And that Lazarus and Martha and Mary, they can lay the table for him in the presence of his enemies. They can anoint him. They can keep his cup. I thought that was a, a pretty amazing thing, that she gets to be how God fulfills this psalm for Jesus. She's sat at his feet. She's learned from him. She's understood. And then that's channeled into how she shows her love for him. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed this, we can do a weird thing, can't we? Where we divorce our head and our heart when it comes to how we respond to Jesus. Some of us will say, I don't want any of that theology stuff. I just want to worship Jesus. And others will say, this whole intimacy with Jesus thing, that sounds a bit airy-fairy. Just give me a bit of meaty truth to get my teeth into. But Mary shows us that both belong together. It's as she comes to understand and grasp and realise just who Jesus is, as she's sitting at his feet and soaking up his word, that, that her worship is fuelled by that. And that, that informs how she pours herself out for him in such a magnificent way. So that's what Mary does. It's a beautiful thing. And yet the reaction to it's a bit mixed, isn't it? There's pushback from the disciples. Judas in particular is singled out. That money should be given to the poor, shouldn't it? She could have done far better with that than pouring it out on Jesus' feet. Totally missed the spiritual edge to what's going on. Questioning her motives. Diminished the, attack, the attempt at devotion. They're trying to silence her, really, aren't they? They say, Mary, you shouldn't be piping up into this. We're the disciples. Push down. Don't get involved in this, Mary. You can do better than that. It's a power play. As Mary's doing such a beautiful thing, they're trying to squish her back into her place. And it's utterly hypocritical. They just want them, particularly Judas, just wants the money to, to nick and use for himself. There's something so wrong, isn't there, when we critique the devotion of one, one another, when People are worshipping, and rather than getting involved and worshipping yourself, you kind of go half an hour, well, that person over there is acting a bit weird. Like, they're actually jumping up and down, and what are they doing with that? And you start to critique the way someone else pours out their heart for Jesus. It's like the football commentator who's never played themselves, but always has a critical word for the people actually on the pitch. It says more about the heart of the critic than it does the worshipper. Let me encourage you, get on the field, get in the game, respond to Jesus yourself, and then the way others are doing that will start to matter a lot less. It'll fade from view. But do you notice, as they're trying to shame her, how Jesus steps in and he honours her. He jumps to her defence. He says, leave her alone. Stop getting on her case. And both Matthew and Mark add that line, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Jesus loves what she's done. He sees the heart behind it. He understands the worship. And then the honour he gives her, isn't it? Mind-blowing. I can't get my head around it. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, what she's done will be told in remembrance of her. And now, 2,000 years on, as we're going through this series, looking at the gospel, what Mary's done is proclaimed in remembrance of her. It's happening, what Jesus said. And I think the reason why Jesus gave that honour is the very thing that she did, it points to the gospel. It points to what Jesus himself, a few days later, would do. Because she poured out something of great price. She took what she'd spent 20 grand or more on, and she poured it out 
Jesus took something even more precious, his very blood, and he poured that out for you and for me. Think about the, the jar with the oil in it for her and how she broke it. And then think about Jesus' very body that he gave to be broken on the cross. In a little while, we'll be taking communion, remembering his blood poured out and his body broken. What Mary did leans into that so well. Think about how, how then she had to endure shame, that people responded to her by having a go at her, by trying to slam her down. And then think about Jesus carrying shame for you and for me. Not just the comments of a few people wanting to have a go, but the very shame of sin. And then think how at the end of it, Jesus honoured her. Jesus vindicated her. And then Jesus himself, as he rose from the dead, honoured and vindicated by the Father. You see, Mary got it. She understood the gospel and her actions show that. She'd readied Jesus for burial and she pointed to the good news of what he would do. Her response should serve as the pattern for our response. Watchman Nee said this, Jesus intends that the preaching of the gospel should issue in something along the very lines of the action of Mary here. Namely, that people should come to him and waste themselves on him. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk We look forward to connecting with you.